All right, the um, passage for today is uh, Colossians 2.20 through 3.11. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? All these regulations refer to things that perish with use. They are simply human commands and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-imposed piety, humility, and severe treatment of the body, but there are no value in checking self-indulgence. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. For on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming down on those who are disobedient. These are the ways uh, you once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves in the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and unearned circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. All right, so uh, last week you recall, uh, this is a part of a, a broader series that's looking at Paul's letters and just asking the question, what are the basic places in our lives where uh, we might be subject to or might be struggling with issues that have existed since the beginning of the faith? Uh, so we looked at uh, the folks in Thessalonica, and now we're looking at the uh, folks in, in Colossia, and we're looking at exactly... Uh, what it is that Paul prescribes to them to live a life which uh, is worthy of and uh, manifests and, 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 in fact, instantiates the values of the kingdom. So if you recall, we looked at, uh, you know, uh, two or three different uh, options for uh, spiritual failure. One was, uh, in the context of Thessalonica, the Roman option. That was the idea that you could micromanage everything around you in a way that you didn't need God. We looked at uh, what we called in Thessalonica the Dionysian option, the uh, idea that you could try and drink away or forget the real problems of the world so that you didn't have to struggle with them. And then finally, in the context of this letter in, uh, to the, the, the church in Colossae, we're looking at uh, folks who think that Christ is not enough. Folks who have uh, are in essential agreement with the core of the faith and who believe that there's something that you need to add on to have a full and complete Christian experience. They think that there is something other than faith in Jesus that is required for you, not only to be made new or to be saved, but to uh, transform your life. And so uh, what we're looking at here is Paul is uh, in, I don't know, the, he's in full Pauline form, really making the case here that uh, our vision of the old law is broken, and what we need is a new vision or a new kind of way of thinking about the law. And the basis for this new way of thinking about the law is this. If you really believe that Jesus Christ is enough, if you really and fully believe 
that you have been made new in Jesus Christ, you have to totally and completely think almost diametrically opposite to the logic of the law that we are used to. And so I'm going to work out and talk about how Paul is talking about here. But this is, this is where the rubber really hits the road on the argument we talked about last week. And we had a long conversation about it uh, at, at the end. Paul is literally claiming that the law has been invalidated, erased, rubbed out. And the core of his point is this, that we don't need to follow the old vision of the law because what we ought to do is figure out not what are the best means for getting there, but we need to start thinking if we're going to think in and through Christ and what Christ asks of us, what is the goal of the law? That's the main Pauline question. What is the goal of the law? And, you know, it's, to me, it's a fascinating question. It's one that I think in our culture we have a hard time really asking. Uh, you know, uh, 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 my wife is a, a, a wonderful enforcer of social rules and social norms in a number of instances. Uh, I, uh, try and butt in front of her in a line sometimes and see what, what happens. But the thing is, it's not just her, it's all of us. All of us have some kind of commitment to the fact that uh, the law is, and of itself, is a moral thing that is independent from the consequences that it's avoiding. That's the thing. That's how we think about the law or the logic of the law in our culture. And, and part of the reason is because, you know, we've been taught since we were relatively little. And when we think about the value and purpose of the law, think back to your American civics class, if you grew up in America and had an American civics class. Uh, but what is the basic story that we learned about why the law is necessary? Well, what, the story that we learned was this. People are kind of messed up. They're going to seek their own self-interest. And so what we do is, we kind of sign this contract with other people called the law that says we give up some of our rights to make sure that we get a little bit of safety and security. But the basic thing we believe about most people is kind of ex is an extension of that idea of the contract. Like most of us ultimately believe that the majority of other people are like, they may be nice, but they're kind of nasty sometimes. They're kind of selfish sometimes. And if you, uh, if you give them their druthers, I think it's probably right to say most people will do whatever they can to maximize their own good, even if it means they might hurt or disadvantage other people. I mean, think about competing for a parking spot, and you'll have the best possible vision of this, right? Because I know myself, I'm tapping that accelerator to try and get there, and I'm going to pop on that, that signal. And, and I, you know, I kind of, I'm not a crazy driver, but I definitely push uh, some boundaries around a, a couple of things, like uh, what counts as the right-hand turn lane is a big one for me. And... Like, I, I'm not the only one here who has cut around a, a kind of fairly significantly into the shoulder to get into a right-hand turn lane, that, uh, when, especially on a school morning when you're waiting for it. And, like, if I'm totally honest about my own psychological motivations, I'm perfectly fine if I don't think that it creates danger and I don't know anyone <laughs> that I'm cutting around. But then if I'm cutting, if I know someone, I'm like, oh, gosh, I can't believe I did that. Yeah. And, you know, you never know what you'll hear from it. But the point is... When we think about our, our concept of adherence to the law, the way we think about adherence to the law is we say, it's probably the case that the law has some moral value independent of consequences. We will oftentimes 
uh, adhere to the law, even when we know there's no rational reason to do so. We talked about stopping at stoplights in the middle of nowhere at whatever o'clock in the morning. We probably think the law has some moral value in and of itself. And uh, sometimes we'll think about breaking the law, but only if, if no one else can see us. And the basic thing that has become so significant for us is that we think, and, and we think about the law in and of itself being good as opposed to thinking about the questions of what is it that the law is trying to achieve. That's something that we don't think about as much because we kind of grew up with this idea that, you know, there's moral implications for breaking the law. So, you know, as we think about it, if all things being equal, it's bad to be a lawbreaker. And in fact, you know, we t if you're a parent, you basically create this ethic of the law is good in and of itself, the rules are good in and of itself all the time. Because you, as a parent, and you don't have to admit it out loud here, have you ever had a kid make a perfectly rational point about uh, something that you're imposing as a disciplinary consequence? And instead of responding to that point by saying, hey, you've got a good point there, what do you say? You say, well, you know, if I made an exception for you, I'd have to make an exception for everybody. Which is, which is nothing other than saying, hey, the law has a moral value independent of the thing that you're trying to achieve. It's like my story with Kala and the screwdriver. Uh, if, you ha if you haven't heard it, Kala and I were fixing the disposal under the sink and uh, Kala had uh, gone through this phase where she loved to take screwdrivers. And uh, so I said to Kala over and over, hey, don't take daddy's screwdriver because when we need to fix something, it won't be there. And then there I am wedged under the sink, uh, fixing the disposal and little Kala's out there in the kitchen and it's a pain in the butt to get out. So I said, hey, you know, Kala, can you hand me the screwdriver? And of course, what did she say? Daddy told me not to hand it to anybody. Daddy told me not to touch it. But what it reveals is that when we think about the law, we don't oftentimes draw a very sharp distinction between the law as a means of achieving something and the thing the law is trying to achieve. And what Paul is saying is that if we live a life in Christ, what we need to think about very carefully is what is the thing that the law is trying to achieve? That's the question here. So what he's saying is that Look, this law of consequences, this law of, hey, bad things are going to happen to you if you don't follow it, the old law that says that there has to be a proportionate punishment for anything that you do, that old law, if you think about what it's trying to achieve, is what? What it's trying to achieve is it's trying to say, people are also kind of nasty and hurtful all the time, and what we need is some set of rules that constrains them from doing the worst stuff that they do. But the point for Paul in the old law is that the old law never fully achieves that goal. The old law's point is to manage our sin, not to eliminate our sin. The old law's point is to make it so that uh, we'll sin to the least extent possible, but the old law doesn't try and transform us. It tries to contain or constrain us. And Paul is saying that the new law, the law of Jesus Christ, the law breaks the idea that everything is about retribution and consequences. And instead, the new law says, you have been made anew in Jesus Christ. You have died with him and you have risen with him. And that being made anew can also transform who you are such that the old law is not necessary anymore. Its purpose has been fulfilled. 
That's the thing. For all the conversations we've had about what, what rules apply and what laws apply and don't apply and uh, how do we think about a world where people are uh, not constrained by the old vision of the law, it's answered so clearly here in Paul, uh, by Paul. And that was the point of last week's passage. He says very clearly, you've been raised with Christ. In him you have the fullness of the Godhead. And so what? We saw it last week and this week. Do not let anyone condemn you. Do not let anyone condemn you. How many times have we had a discussion about what rules you do and don't have to follow in the context of faith or in the church where someone said, what you're saying I feel condemns me and Paul said I'm not supposed to let anybody condemn me because I'm a new person in Christ so I'm done with the conversation. It doesn't even enter into our calculations for most of the time about how we think about uh, our feelings of guilt and our feelings of shame and our feelings of whether or not we are living up to what God calls us to be. But Paul is saying we have an obligation not to let anyone condemn us because the lesson that we learn from these Gnostics in Colossae is this. Guess what? It's not just a point of, the- it's not just like a theological debating society point. Hey, how much does the law uh, apply to me? Because Paul's saying for the Gnostics in Colossae, the law had become an idol. It had become something that people said, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to follow this set of rules or practices. And what Paul is saying here is that that whole circuit of condemnation, the thing that holds the law over your head, that makes you think that maybe God doesn't quite love you enough, that makes you think that maybe you're not worthy of God's love, that makes you think that perhaps for some reason there's, there's a, there, there is a, a lingering part of you which is, which is sinful and that God can't fully accept, that whole thing, that whole complex around guilt becomes an idol for us. It stands in for, and in fact, gets into our, our, our spiritual life such that we start to think that following the rules and following the laws and following the practices is what makes us good instead of saying what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that you've been made anew in Christ, and so there's no reason for you to feel that guilt, to feel that sense of consistently fallen short, because if we believe that Jesus has made us anew, if we believe that Jesus has turned us into something different, then we don't need the luxury of saying, if I follow the law, it makes me feel like I'm doing the right thing, because we put our faith fully and completely in him. Paul says, if you died to the cosmos, the elemental spirits of the universe, the rule of the world, why do you still live as if you're in the world? Why do you submit to these regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These things refer to things that perish with use. They are simply human commands and teaching that have the appearance of wisdom and the appearance of piety and the appearance of humility, but they have no value. How powerful the statement is that? I mean, think about it. Paul's saying all the different rules that we adhere to, you know, we can, we can use to make ourselves feel better about our spiritual life. We can use to say, you know, hey, we're really advanced in uh, Christian faith 101. I'm like a 98th level, I don't know, uh, Christian elder because I followed uh, the rules and I can demonstrate that I follow the rules. But the point is, Paul says that uh, a regime of the law makes us feel good about who we are, but that regime of the law doesn't do anything to transform you because what transforms you is Jesus. What transform you, it transforms you is putting your faith in him. And so this is what he says this week, which is a pretty powerful continuation of, of the thing he said last week. He said, if you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. Don't focus on the things of the earth because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
That's what Paul's saying here is that this question of the law and how much we have to follow the law and whether or not the law applies, what Paul's saying is if you really believe that Jesus has transformed you, then you believe that Jesus has reached into your person and he has invoked a power that is deeper and more efficacious than the law of man or the law of nature or the law of democratic agreement. And if you believe in that, if you believe that Jesus has transformed you, then the belief in Jesus is enough to make us anew. And if you don't believe it, shoot, go back to the Gnostic club because they have a bunch of rules that they can tell you that if you adhere to them, you'll have a fuller and deeper experience of who God is. But Jesus says, I am sufficiently enough to transform you, to make you a new person. And therefore, it's not like the old law was a bad idea before we knew who Jesus was, but it's no longer necessary because we are made anew and transformed in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says here. Lucia said, uh, Lucia made, I thought, a great point last week, and hopefully she'll listen to it or we'll talk about it later. But Lucia read through this set of uh, points and says, you know, this is a pretty interesting interpretation. Yeah, it's, it's pretty powerful. But then we get to this point just in the verse that we looked at today where Paul says, yeah, but you have to put to death fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. And then here's the kicker, because on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. Now, you read that, and what does it feel like? It feels like Paul has totally and utterly reversed the point that the old law is not necessary anymore. And, you know, I mean, it's a a powerful case, and we talked about it afterwards, and, you know, I, I have a reading of it that I think is right, but here's the beautiful and incredible thing, is sometimes you just look at the Greek really closely, and all of a sudden, holy cow, there's this beautiful thing that, the translation doesn't get at. And that, and that happened here. So Paul says, put to death things that are earthly, fornication, impurity, evil desire, and greed. And here's the kicker. He says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. Everybody got a similar translation? What, what it's, uh, that'd be uh, five and six, or six. Mm, pretty, anybody got a different Mike word? says, in some trans manuscripts upon the sons of disobedience. Yeah. Okay, so this is why, yeah, it's great to dig in. Okay. The first thing is, what is God's wrath? The Greek there is a word, orge. We've talked about it before, and it means like anger. Uh, It does mean wrath, but it means like also uh, natural disposition or character. In other words, like, have you ever seen someone get so passionate or so angry or so excited about something that was kind of totally and fully at the core of who they were, that for them to express that intensity of passion was also to express their innermost being. You know what I'm talking about? Like you watch some sports fans and you're like, they're very excited. They're so excited about their team that it's not just yay, but it's like they're pouring their whole selves into, into doing this. It's, it's who they are. So orge is the idea that something internal to your personality overwhelms you and causes you to express Something. So what, what Paul, whatever we're saying about wrath here, it's saying in the Greek, uh, God's nature is keyed up to display whose God's character is against, and then here's the thing, the most translations say the disobedient, or the Greek says the sons of the disobedient, is how most translations will do it, but not quite. Here's what's so beautiful. There's this perfectly good word for disobedient. There's, there's a beautiful word that just says you broke the law, you didn't follow the rules, you uh, are not listening to what God says uh, for you to do. But uh, Paul does not use that word here. And in fact, 
He also uses, uh, instead of saying it's just the lawbreakers, the, the Greek says that it'll be on the sons of the lawbreakers, which makes it uh, even more weird to understand how it squares with the rest of the, the passage here. So the phrase here is huyos teis, and then the, uh, the word for disobedient is apatheis. So the Greek phrase here is the children of apatheis. Now that word apatheis does not mean disobedient. Here's the gorgeous thing. The root word in it is a Greek word, patho, that I've talked about before. And wonderfully, that word means persuasion. Rhetoric is about patho. What this is saying is that the object of wrath here are folks who are literally called the children of the unpersuaded. God's exercise of God's wrath in this instance is exercised on those who are informed by and those who are in effect children of their unpersuaded nature. So what God's saying here is that God's wrath is not being visited on people because they break rules, because they don't follow what God asks, or even because they are disobedient. God's wrath here is exercised on those who are not persuaded or moved by this picture or vision of who Christ is. It's perfectly and beautifully consistent with the rest of the argument. What Paul's saying here, if you boil it down to its most elemental terms, is, hey, if you believe that Jesus Christ transforms you, if you are persuaded by a new vision of who God is and what God is trying to do for us, if you are a person who is moved or whose nature is changed by the beauty of Jesus Christ, you are a person who will be transformed and does not need the old law. But if you are not persuaded by, if you are not transformed by, if you are not changed by the action of the person of Jesus Christ, then you will become subject to God's wrath. The wrath here is not because you broke a rule. The wrath here is because your person is not transformed by encountering and fully being remade by Jesus Christ. This is not against the idea of grace. It is completely and perfectly in favor of it. Those of us who are able to be transformed because we fully put our faith and are persuaded by the person of Jesus Christ, changing us, making it possible for us to be different, making it possible for us to live under the law of love, those people will never be subject to the wrath of God. But a person who says, well, I don't quite feel like Jesus is enough, there is a rule or a concept or an idea that I need to really work out my salvation, that person is not persuaded by the idea that Jesus is enough, and therefore that person is subject to the wrath of God. The object here is not to punish rule breakers. The object here is to say that God's character for justice is poured out on people who do not think that God is enough, who do not believe in what Jesus Christ has done at the cross, do not believe in the radically transformative character of him, of his life and his resurrections. But you, brothers and sisters, Paul says, you have been made anew. You are continually being made anew in Christ. The wrath is not for you, 
Even if you break a rule, do not let anyone condemn you, even if you might be subject to condemnation under the law, because that stuff doesn't apply to you anymore if you have died and risen with him. Because to know Jesus and to love Jesus and to be transformed by the character of Christ makes you subject to a new law, the law of love. And that's why Paul says, these are the things that you once followed when you were living that life. Get rid of those things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language, because you have stripped off the old self with its practices and you have clothed yourself in the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of its creator. And here's the thing, in that death to our old life, and living into a new life that is offered to every person without qualification or caveat. There is no, uh, nothing that you need in terms of a category or a practice or a person because Paul says in 11, in that renewal, there is no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free because Christ is all and is in all. Amen. Questions of conversation?